After a short break, we're back this morning studying the Gospel of Mark. In this book so far, if you've been with us, we've gotten a front row seat to the life and ministry of Christ. We've seen that Jesus is a king who can heal diseases, he can calm storms, he can walk on water, and he can even raise the dead. Well, this morning, we get to go behind the veil, and we begin to look at the final hours of Christ's life. All of the Bible, all of redemptive history leads up to this point, beginning back in eternity past with God's plan to slay his son, and it comes here to its climax as the religious leaders seek the death of Christ. This passion narrative begins with Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you're new to the church, the teaching of the Bible is that there is one God. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, they're co-equal, they're co-eternal, they share all the divine attributes, and they live together in eternal community. So, that means that before you and I ever existed, before we were ever created, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what does it look like when God has a conversation within his own Trinitarian community? Well, in our passage, we get to hear today God the Son talking, God the Son praying to God the Father. I mean, some of us, if we were honest, we would confess that we like to eavesdrop. Right? We like to hear in on other people's private conversations. Well, this morning, you have permission from the king himself from God to listen in on a significant conversation in the history of the world. So if you have a Bible, please turn back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 14 today, continuing our study from verses 32 on down to verse 42. You'll find it two-thirds through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got a stack in the back at the visitor table. We'd love for everyone to have the Word of God in their hands to be able to study it, to be able to read it, and learn what God has to say to us. Well, I'll begin reading in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Let us pray together. 
Father, as we approach this glorious text, would you open our hearts to your love towards us? That our hearts would leap for joy as we see how wide and how deep and how high your love has extended to your people. Would your word melt our hearts this morning? Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're all familiar with stories of leaders and heroes as they face death. You can think back to the famous philosopher Socrates who was condemned and as he was dying he was drinking his poison and coolly and calmly talking ironic one-liners with those who stood around him. We've all seen movies and read historical accounts of valiant warriors heroically dying for their people, standing up in front of their armies and dying in battle for their countrymen. And consider the long list of Christian leaders dying bravely. I mean, think of Polycarp, for example. He was the bishop of Smyrna not long after the time of Christ. And near the end of his life, because he professed Christ, he was taken before the rulers and told that he was to be burned at the stake. They said, Polycarp, hey, we're going to burn you here, but you have one more chance. You have one chance to recant Christ, to turn away from Jesus. If you just say you don't believe in him, that he's not real, then we'll leave this burning away. We'll let you go home. We'll call it a night. Everything will be just fine. To which Polycarp replied, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Or take Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, who were burned at the stake out in Oxford, England in 1555. They were tied side by side to one another. And as the flames started engulfing their feet and started making the way up their bodies, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. These are examples of some brave men. And there's examples of brave men and brave women throughout all of history, both Christians and non-Christians, standing up to the end, dying bravely. And yet here we have Jesus, right before his execution, Laying bare his struggles, laying bare his fear, laying bare his agony for all to see. I mean, in our text, he even pleads to God, saying, Is there a way for this cup to be taken away from me? Is there any way I could get out of this mission? I mean, Jesus has maintained control at all times, hasn't he? And yet, our text here says that he is deeply distressed. The word there translated actually means astonished. I mean, so far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been untroubled, unfazed. But here suddenly, something he sees, something he realizes, something he experiences stuns the eternal Son of God. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So why is it that many of Jesus' followers, why is it that so many men and women have died, quote, better deaths than Jesus? Well, the answer is that Jesus was facing something that Polycarp wasn't facing. Something that 
none of the other martyrs were facing, something that no other man, woman, or child has ever faced in the history of the universe. See, something happened in the garden. Jesus felt, he sensed something, and it shocked the unshockable Son of God. Well, what was it? Well, he was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through on the cross. I mean, didn't Jesus know he was going to die? Didn't Jesus know that he was going to go to the cross? Well, of course he did. He's been telling his disciples throughout the book, guys, you don't get this. I'm going to die. I'm walking on towards my death. It's going to be a rough ending. I'm going to die. They just didn't get it. But now he's beginning to taste what he'll experience at the cross. And it goes beyond physical torture. It goes beyond death. It goes beyond flames or crucifixion. Now, what's this terrible thing? Well, it's at the very heart of Jesus' prayer in this passage. And it will show us how we, as a church, as we as individuals can experience peace for all of eternity. So if you're taking notes this morning, just two real simple points that we're going to look at. And the first one is peace for eternity. How can we experience peace for all eternity? We see it right there. Look at the content of Christ's prayer in verse 36. Take this cup from me. The thought of this cup is bringing him sorrow. We need to know in the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God poured out on human evil. Ezekiel 23, 33 speaks of a cup of horror and desolation. Isaiah 51, 22, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger. It's the goblet of my wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. See, Jesus is in a loving relationship with the Father, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath. The horror of this cup. This one who loved him was now holding this cup over the sun, ready to pour out its entire contents upon him. This is so distressing to Jesus that Luke, the physician, in his account, in Luke's gospel, actually says Jesus was sweating blood. That he was so distressed that blood was literally coming out of his pores. This extreme duress of the moment was tormenting Christ. Now Jesus, for the first time, is beginning to fall apart. He says, I'm so crushed with sorrow that I feel like I'm going to die on the spot. Let me put it like this. Every time you and I sin, it's like a drop falling into a cup. And it's being collected. And then commensurate with the sin that we pour in against an infinite God. Then God, at the end of this life, pours out his infinite wrath upon us. See, for right now, the wrath of God is mostly passive. Romans 1 says that God is handing us over to our evil. And yet, for many of us, we're feeling like we're doing pretty good. Even though we're going down this path of evil, life is good. Things are happening well for us. What God is doing is he's letting us do what we want to do. But what you're doing is heading down a road that's about to end at the edge of a cliff. But rather than heeding the signs of God and stopping and turning around, you're going hundreds of kilometers to the edge and eventually you're going to fall off. 
See, this cup that Jesus is talking about, the cup of divine wrath, is one that we won't see until the end. But each and every one of us is filling each day, sin after sin, folly after folly, rebellion after rebellion, arrogance after arrogance, drop after drop after drop. And God lets us fill the cup. All of our sin goes in, and then in the end, God pours out his wrath on sinners forever. The Bible uses words like the grinding of teeth and the shedding of tears to describe this time. No, Jesus' distress, not because he was facing physical pain or torment like Polycarp and others. You see, Polycarp was comforted by God as he faced death. Jesus, however, was being confronted with all the sins of humanity. He who never knew sin would now face the alienation of God. So much so that he would later say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the thought of this just overwhelms Christ in the garden. He says he feels like he's about to die. The agony was so great that there in verse 35, it says that he fell to the ground and he prayed, Father, is there any other way? Is there another option? How does a dad looking at his son who is begging him so desperately, sobbing, even bleeding, how does a dad feel about his son? And if you're a dad and you have a son, think about it. I think about my baby boy, Judson. He's the cutest thing right now. He just turned one, and he's just learning how to walk, which is really, really exciting if you're a parent. You know, we kind of cheer him on and watch him walk. And it's great. At this point right now, he's walking about three or four steps, and then, of course, he makes a face plant right into the ground. But then he gets back up, and he tries it again, walks three or four steps, face plant to the ground, and we just kind of sit back and watch, and he does it over and over and over again. It's great. And most of the time, when he falls, he just kind of giggles, kind of laughs, and then he gets up. But every once in a while, he'll fall the wrong way. He'll nick his cheek on something, and he'll, uh, he'll cry out. Well, as a dad, I can hardly even take that. When I see my son hurting and crying, I run over there, and I give him a hug, and I, I tell him, Judson, Judson, it's going to be okay. And I whisper in his ear, and I hold him the best that I can. But see, at the cross... God the Father sends his son to die, and he turns his back from him. All hatred and sin poured upon Christ so that we could be loved perfectly. Jesus willingly took the cup and drank every single drop of God's wrath. God made him who knew no sin to become the sin of the world, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible uses... Uh, a word to explain this. It's the word propitiation. It's a big word, but it's an important word. Propitiation. And it means this. It means the satisfaction of God's wrath. The satisfaction of God's wrath. See, for God to be a loving God, for him to be a perfectly holy God, for him to be a perfectly righteous God, he must hate evil. He must judge evil fully. He must judge it finally. This righteous anger of God must be dealt with. And the best news for us today is that God has done this for us as a gift. Through the redemption, which means through the payment that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Whom God put forward to satisfy God's anger so that you and I didn't have to. 
The Bible says it is to be received by faith. It's a gift by grace to be received by faith. Friend, have you turned to Christ in faith? He is the only way to escape the cup of God's wrath. If you turn from your sin, have faith that Jesus alone through his death can save you. God says you were brought into his kingdom, that you were given new life. And he promises to pour out his wrath on his son instead of on you. This is the good news that we call the gospel. One of my favorite authors, Milton Vincent, says that the gospel reminds us that what we actually deserve from God is a full cup churning with the torments of wrath. That this is a cup that would be ours to drink if we were given what we deserve each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. That we would celebrate if only that cup would come back empty. And if there were merely the tiniest drop of blessing in that cup, then we would be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God. That God, in fact, though, has given us a cup that is full of every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this, without any slightest admixture of wrath, leaves us just dumbfounded. Friend, as a Christian, I hope it is absolutely dumbfounding to you today, that is absolutely staggering to you today, that the cup of God's wrath has been spared from falling upon you and instead has been placed upon Jesus. I hope we never get over this. I hope we never stop celebrating this. It's mind-boggling. Friend, have you turned to Christ? Have you done a U-turn in your life? Have you stopped and acknowledged that you're going the wrong way, realizing that the road you're driving is just going to lead to death? Have you done a U-turn and gone in the opposite direction towards Christ? Have you placed your faith in Him to save you from your sin? That's what we mean when we say becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Christ. Have you become one? The most important question I can ask you today is, have you become a Christian? Because remember from Max's sermon a few weeks ago that just coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a bakery makes you a piece of bread or a piece of cake. We don't become a Christian by osmosis. Doing good things won't absorb God's wrath. The Bible says we can never be good enough that none of us are righteous, not even one. That you aren't saved by walking an aisle or praying a prayer that you recited or because you grew up in a Christian home or because you've been dunked in a baptism service. No, the cup of God's wrath is removed only by faith in Jesus. Friends, have you done a U-turn in your life? Now, don't mess with this. Because ultimately, when we come to the end of the age, there are only two people in this world. There are only two people who will hear this message. Those who believe it and those who don't. History is not divided into various religions or races or ethnicities or tribes or tongues or incomes or intelligences. No, there are fundamentally two kinds of people. Those who believe will have the wrath of God lifted from them. And those who don't believe the wrath of God is coming forever. And here's how the Bible says it. John 3 says that whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. Do you catch what he's saying there? What Jesus is saying is whoever, whoever, whoever 
Friend, that's you. That's me. It's anybody. It's everybody. Everybody's welcome to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. Now, I love preaching this. I love this. I can't think of anything better to do with my time than in this very second, this very moment, than to hold out to you this word of life that tells you that Jesus can save you from your sins through his death on the cross. Because, friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you feel right now. But Jesus says, whoever believes... Yes, God is exclusive. There's only salvation through Christ. But God is also incredibly inclusive. That whoever wants to come to Jesus can come to Jesus. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That means life together with God in heaven forever. Worshiping the King of Kings. No pain, no tears, just eternal joy. So friend, come to Christ today. Because you need to know that the Bible also says, whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Come to Christ and the cup of God's wrath with your name on it. We poured out on Jesus instead. This is the love that we've all been looking for all our lives. No family love, no friend love, no spousal love, no romantic love, no love we can find on this earth can satisfy us. They're all but a shadow of true love, the substance, the reality of God's love for us. Place your faith in Christ and you will experience peace for all eternity. Well, our passage not only has eternal ramifications and implications for eternal peace, it also shows us how we can experience peace on earth. So that's the second point if you're tracking here. Peace for eternity and peace on earth. We see in the passage that Jesus takes his three disciples in his inner circle to the garden. Now, Peter, James, and John are with him. He does this on several occasions. He does this when he raises Jairus from the dead. He does this during the transfiguration, and now he'll do it again. He does this to teach them. And he tells his disciples two things, to watch and to pray. To watch and pray. This means, to watch means to get prepared for what's to come, to agonize with Jesus at his impending death. But when Jesus goes back to his disciples, what are they doing? They're sleeping. Jesus says, hey guys, you couldn't even watch for one hour? I mean, Jesus is about to die and they've hit the snooze button over and over and over again. The the disciples just don't get it. You say, well, it's been a long day. It's the middle of the night and come on just give them a break they've had a big meal they've walked up the hill they're just waiting for jesus what they don't know what's going on well luke actually adds something very helpful for us he says in his account that they were asleep luke says because of sorrow because of sorrow their eyes were made heavy and think about it things weren't going the way they had planned right we've talked about in previous weeks that they were expecting this great kingdom to come, that Jesus would rule and reign, that the full kingdom would be consummated, that they were fighting over who would rule on God's right and God's left, who would rule there with Jesus, who would have a privileged place in the kingdom. And they were excited to see this big thing happening and everybody worshiping Jesus, the king. But instead, Jesus says he's going to get arrested and he's going to die. He's even place condemnation on Jerusalem when he says that not one stone of the temple will be left unturned. 
This is not at all what they expected. It's not the kingdom they had planned on. So Luke says their sorrow drives them to sleep. When circumstances of your life give you the desires of your heart, what happens? When circumstances of your, of your life give you the desires of your heart, what happens? Well, well we're happy, right? We're rejoicing. So when you're in need of a job or when you're in need of a visa and you get it, you rejoice. Your circumstances in your life have met the desires of your heart. Or maybe when you go on holiday and you're having a great time, you start updating your Facebook status every 12 minutes just to show the rest of us how much fun you're having. Right? That, hey, I'm having a good time without you. And you start updating all your pictures, all your albums, make us feel sad. But it's because you're having a good time. You're rejoicing. You're happy. The circumstances of your life have met the desires of your heart. Well, Tim Keller writes that when there is a gap between the circumstances of your life and the desires of our heart, it's in that place that we suffer. And so what's our tendency when we suffer? Well, Keller says our tendency is two things. When our desires don't match up with our circumstances. First, we try to change our circumstances. We try to change them. We try and run. We think that if only I can get a new job then I'll be happy and secure. Or if only I can have a new spouse, if only I can get rid of my husband or wife, then I'll be happy. If I have one that'll love me the way I deserve, then things will be okay. We play that if only game, right? If only I had blank, then I'll have arrived. Then I'll feel good. Then I'll enjoy waking up in the morning. Then I'll rejoice. We try to expend all of our energy trying to change our circumstances. Or, a second thing we can try to do is to quench our desires. To quench them, to avoid them. We can sleep like the disciples. We can drown our sorrows in sleep and in depression. Maybe we escape to alcohol or sex. Or we avoid dealing with issues in our marriage because we don't want to open up and face our pain or hurt. But see, Jesus doesn't do either. He submits to God. He isn't running from his circumstances. He isn't escaping reality. But he redirects his desires and he puts them in his father's hands. He pours out his heart to the father. This is absolutely incredible. Friend, if you're suffering, if your circumstances aren't matching up with the desires of your heart, don't run from them. Don't try to squelch your emotions and feelings. Don't sleep through it. Don't come here on Friday mornings and just smile as if everything's okay. Friend, take it to the Father. It'll be tempting to run or suppress our feelings, but our Lord gives us warning in verse 38. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. How many times has this lesson been repeated to the disciples? I mean, how many times have we heard it in the Gospel of Mark? Disciples, don't depend on your own strength. Don't trust your own emotions. Don't trust in your circumstances. Trust in God. Call on Him in prayer. Now, friend, if you want peace on earth, go to God. Pray. But notice something important about prayer. We get peace not because prayer is about getting things from God, but it's about getting God. 
Prayer is not about getting things from God. It's about getting God himself. The essence of prayer is not give us our daily stuff. No, Jesus starts his prayer here with the word Father. The actual term is an Aramaic term, Abba. It's a unique term. No Jew before Jesus ever addressed God in this way. It was striking. It was unparalleled. It was an extremely intimate way of addressing God. See, God the Son was coming before God the Father, not as a force or abstraction, but as a Father. He is furthermore not the father of deism, one who has created the world and then kind of lets it go. No, he is a father who's utterly concerned about the lives of his children. So this is typically the first thing Jesus prays. It's the same in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. It's always Father. The essence of prayer is not to give us our daily stuff. No, first comes orientation. It's the searing of the senses that in Christ, the cosmic Lord of the universe is our Father. Now, some of you really struggle in prayer. Well, let me tell you this. The key to growing in prayer is not to focus on prayer itself. Now, as you know, as we celebrated again this morning, I had a great time in India. I loved being there. I loved being in Lucknow with Shaker and his family. India is a wonderful country. The people are delightful. Christians are welcoming. If you've ever been to Lucknow, then you know that the food is absolutely delicious. I had this mutton kebab that literally melted in my mouth. It was unreal. But I think the most shocking thing about India for me was the driving. I'm not sure there even exists lines on roads. I'm not even sure they, they have roads in that country. The next time someone complains about driving here in Dubai, I've already told myself that I'm going to bite my tongue. Because I've never seen anything like I saw in Lucknow, India. Taxis and cars and bicycles and pedestrians and motorcycles all sharing one space. And at one point, I thought we were going to die. Actually, several points I thought we were going to die. But I love seeing Shaker drive. He is absolutely amazing. He has one hand on the steering wheel and then one hand on the horn. And he's just honking away. I thought he honked like 4,000 times one day. I started keeping count, but I can't count that high. He just starts holding the wheel, honk, 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 and he's swerving through cars. At one point he was honking. I thought he was literally going to scale the side of the road and then scale the side of the building and then kind of jump over like Spider-Man. It was crazy. It was crazy. Well, at one point when two cars in front of us kind of peeled off, Shaker slammed on the brakes as fast as he could. And then right before us, what felt like half a centimeter away in the center of a major highway was a big, black, hairy, and scary-looking cow staring me in the face, just saying, Hi, Dave. It was amazing. I wish my girls were there to see a zoo on the highway. They would have loved it. They would have loved it. Well, I saw illustrated before me that the key to driving is not thinking about driving. I don't think Shaker did any thinking that day. No, it's not thinking about the gear shift. It's not thinking about the steering wheel or the engine. The key is not to thinking about how the car is moving or what you're doing as you drive. No, you concentrate on the road so you can avoid other cars, so you can avoid people when you can... Hopefully and prayerfully avoid the cows and other animals. And so it is with prayer. If you just look at prayer and the theories floating around about prayer and obsess over the 50 ways guaranteed to improve your prayers, you'll get stuck. Instead, look at God. 
Get to know him as a father. Get to know him as a loving and gracious father whose love was so deep for us that he sent his one and only son to die, to be crushed for us. If you want to improve your prayer life, look at Jesus. Look at his love for you that he took the father's wrath, every last drop of it upon himself, that he was separated from the father so that you and I could never be separated from the father. Meditate on the riches of the gospel. Meditate on the riches of God's word and let an overflow of that bring you relationship with God. Because when we pray, we're not just delivering information, but we're building a relationship. So honestly, when we pray, we're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. I mean, we don't go to God and say, God, I had a really hard day today. Oh, wow, Dave, I had no idea. Tell me about it. No, he knows what's going on in your life. God is never surprised with what happens. No, he knows exactly what's happening. And when prayer, we come before God in relationship. God does move through prayer in his sovereign design. He has brilliantly chosen to move through prayer. And prayer certainly changes us. It brings us into alignment with God's will and plan. But fundamentally, it's an expression of our relationship with God. Though God the Father knew what Jesus was going through. He knew Jesus was going through the cross. Jesus knew he was going there. It was a done deal. And yet he prayed because prayer is not about getting stuff. It's about getting God. We need to completely throw off the notion of a name it and claim it Christianity. That if we pray hard and we do good things, we'll get the riches that we think we deserve, or health, or fame, or whatever else your heart desires. That's not God's intention. Those things may or may not come, but what God does offer to every single one of us is Himself. That's the prize. That's the prize in this life. That's the prize to the spiritual life. That's the prize in our prayers. It's God himself. It's a relationship with the living God of the universe. The one who ruins ev- rules every square centimeter on this earth has given you the privilege of a personal relationship with him. That you can come to God the Father in prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the intercession of God the Son at all times, any moment of the day, in all circumstances. You know, a praying life doesn't look like a long list of the things that we need as if we're just working through a, a, a wish list. You know, Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says prayer feels like our family mealtimes because it's about a relationship. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. At mealtime, you don't concentrate on the laws of conversation. No, you concentrate on the person sitting across from you. So it is with prayer. To experience peace on this earth, we read God's word to us. And we pray back to him, his word, and pray back to him what God is doing in our lives. Some of us will go through our entire lives hunting for some magic pill that will relieve us of our stress. But our anxiety runs too deep. Our anxiety makes us feel like we're filled with severed power lines destroying everything in our paths. Anxiety wants to be God, but it lacks all wisdom and power and knowledge. It's a bunch of lies. It tells you that you're not going to be okay. Now, friend, instead of fighting anxiety, you can use it as a springboard to bending your hearts to God. To replace your negative affections with a greater affection, namely Jesus. No prayer will bring you peace on earth. Look at the end of the passage. Jesus says to his disciples, rise up. Let's go. You see indication, Jesus, his acceptance of the will of God. It's not hiding, it's not suppressing those emotions. He's ready to meet his betrayer. 
The entourage of leaders were coming. It may have been as many as 600 soldiers, maybe a thousand people coming with their torches, walking up the hill there in the Mount of Olives. Jesus sees them and yet he submits to the will of the Father. And he prays, not my will, but yours be done. Now praying has transformed his heart. It's given him peace. That's what prayer does. It readies us for God's good purposes to be accomplished in and through us. Now come to the Lord in prayer. He will bring you peace. Because as the first man, Adam, turned away from God the Father in a garden, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, turns to the Father in a garden. The first Adam is told, Obey me about a tree and you will live. But he didn't. This time God comes to the second Adam and says, Obey me about the tree. This time a cross. And I will crush you. And he did. Why? For God's glory. Because Christ loves the Father and because he loves you. Because he'd rather lose himself than lose us. So he lived the perfect life and at the end of his life he did the greatest act of obedience in all of human history. He took our curse and he gave us his life. Friend, if he didn't abandon you in the garden, why would you think he's abandoned you today? Don't run from your circumstances. Don't suppress your feelings. He died so that while we might at times feel abandoned, he will never let us go. Friend, come to this great God in prayer. If you're exhausted at your job and you can't take another mean comment from your boss, look to Jesus. If your back aches and you don't know how you can literally stand another day, look to Jesus. If you're worn out as a mom or as a father changing nappies all day for your kids and you've lost track of them, friend, look to Jesus. If you're anxious wondering how you can pay your bills, look to Jesus. If you're facing persecution for sharing your faith in the workplace, look to Jesus. If you're nervous about your children wandering down a dangerous path, don't distress, look to Jesus. If you're single and lonely, look to Jesus. If you're married and lonely, look to Jesus. Look to him in the garden. Look to him at the cross. Now, does God really care about you? Well, Christian, the cross of Christ proves his love and faithfulness. What more can he say than that? Fall down at his feet in prayer. Prayer is like opening a medicine chest and finding the cure for any distress you're going through in life. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that Christ became our substitute. Oh, Father, we praise you that he took the full cup of your wrath so that we could be forgiven. Oh God, you are the almighty king of the universe. You rule every square centimeter in this universe. Oh, you alone are trustworthy. You are in control and you are good. Oh Father, would we as a church, would we as a congregation trust you today? Would we look to Jesus in the garden? That we would look to Jesus at the cross. 
That we would feel deeply your love for us. Father, that we would cast all our anxieties, all our distresses upon you. For if you sent your son to take all of our wrath, there is nothing for us to fear. There's no doubt we should have. There is no anxiety too great, for one has come and has conquered all for us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.